0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people you have a chance to win some money, downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people. And when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too. Always available on demand, with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God!
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now
0: here's your host, Brad Listing just one person at just one time right okay right.
1: you guys here we go again this is it this is other people this is bibliophilic this is about people who write compulsively thanks for being here my name is Brad listy I'm in Los Angeles California it's nice to be with you and I'm gonna start today with some mail uh, I get a lot of email some of it related to the podcast some of it is related to the nervous breakdown some of it uh, I'm not sure what it's related to but just this past week, uh, I received an, an interesting email from a gentleman named Lewis who writes, Dear Brad, as a regular visitor to thenervousbreakdown.com, I believe you might be interested in a unique Tony Danza-inspired art project that I am working on. I would love the opportunity to discuss, quote, Danza did it, end quote, with you. Uh, the idea behind Danza did it is to present a performance art project that will originate online and hopefully manifest itself in the real world. It is an interdisciplinary work. I view it as an odd melding of pop culture overkill and avant-garde experimentalism. The overall project will look to examine the artistic value of internet memes and to track its growth as it becomes more widely accepted by the mainstream. I cite, quote, Chuck Norris facts, end quote, as an example of an internet sensation that has successfully crossed over. As you are aware, Tony Danza is a man of many talents, actor, teacher, tap dancer, boxer, etc., just to name a few. Much like the idiom jumping the shark was coined by, uh, online by a man named John Hine, it is my goal to have the phrase Danza did it trickle into the everyday lexicon of society. Tony Danza represents someone who has done nearly everything, hence the meaning of Danza did it, as an expression of, quote, it's been done before, end quote. Though the idea of associating Tony Danza's face and persona with a meaningful art experiment might seem ridiculous, and to a certain extent it is, I look at Shepard Fairey's Andre the Giant has a posse as inspiration and a foundation for success. It is my goal to put together a collective of underground artists that share in this motivation to propel Danza Did It into a variety of mediums. I'm confident that this project is not only capable of success, but that it could also help bring humor into areas where it might be lacking. Humor builds hope which alleviates stress. Perhaps we can all unite in the name of Danza. Danza. Finally, I believe it is important to note that this project's origin comes out of the endless number of tragedies that came into my life last year, the first of which was the untimely death of my father, who as a pedestrian was struck and killed by a vehicle in a hit-and-run on September seventeenth, 2012. My father was impressed by Tony Danza's feat to master a new craft each year. He once told me that Tony Danza was just as good of a rapper as Eminem. Together we both shared an interest in the lives of washed-up celebrities and those who chose to remove themselves from the spotlight. As bizarre as this project might seem, it is personal to me and serves a cathartic purpose. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Lou. So, uh <laughs> thank you Lou for the letter and for the invitation. I'm sorry to hear about your dad. First of all, that's awful news. Uh, the hit and run—that is—that is terrible. So, my condolences there. As for this project, as for uh, Danza, did it? I gotta be—I gotta be honest. I'm not sure if I'm the right person for this. I'm having a hard time accessing uh, the project mentally, like visualizing it, or finding like a real uh, deep connection to its purpose personally. I'm not a huge Tony Danza fan, for one thing. And, uh, you know, I don't have anything against him, but I'm not uh, hugely invested in his career. So I don't know if I'm prepared to uh, to invest the time and the energy and possibly even the money uh, that will be, you know, that will be needed uh, in order to create a Tony Danza related Internet meme. But, you know, if there are people out there listening who feel differently, if you're out there and you're tuned in right now and you uh, you find this compelling and you want to support the project. It is on Kickstarter. It is called Danza Did It. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know know exactly how Kickstarter works, but I imagine if you go to kickstarter.com and you search for Danza Did It, you'll be able to find this project.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow,
1: My guest today is Richard Chim. He is the author of You Private Person, a collection of short stories that is now available from Scrambler Books. It's great to have him here on the show. Uh, This is our conversation. Richard and me. Me and Richard. Richard and I. A conversation, which I have recorded so that you can listen to it. Please enjoy.
2: Right now, I'm in Seattle, Washington. I'm in Castle Hill, and I'm in my bedroom. Sitting on the carpet
1: so you're sitting on the floor
2: uh yeah it's because my cell phone has like a really bad battery so I have to keep it connected to the charger which is connected to the floor
1: oh my god so like what kind of po- like what kind of physical position are you in are you in some sort of strange crouch or are you able to sit comfortably like Indian style
2: and it's totally Indian style right now I don't know if that's politically correct but I'm like definitely crisscross up so that's on the floor.
1: That's what my little—that's what my daughter says. I think they teach crisscross applesauce at school now. Is, is Indian style? Not, I guess that's not PC, right?
2: Yeah, I just feel uncomfortable saying it. I I usually go with crisscross applesauce. That's my go-to.
1: But that's like that. That seems almost like because I, I I get it, you know. But it seems like when you say crisscross applesauce, it's like maybe a little bit childish or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm down for a little playfulness. I think that helps.
1: Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, um tell me about yourself. I I have got to say I know I know not a ton about your personal history, where you're from, etc. So, let's get let's start there. Like let's get into biographical stuff. Like where are you from originally?
2: Uh well, let's see. I was born in Los Angeles. I think in um Harris Hospital. I don't even know where that is. It was just that's what it says on my birth certificate.
1: Harris Hospital. Uh, I don't
2: know. Have- yeah, it's called Paris Hospital.
1: Like Paris or Harris?
2: Paris, like Paris, France.
1: Oh, weird. I've never heard of that. I've lived here for 12 years.
2: <laughs> yeah, me other man. I'm not even really sure if it's, like, around. But I don't have any memory of it. I moved to uh, Vancouver, Washington when I was three with my mom and dad. And, kind I kinda was raised there. And then, let's see, like, right around 2001, I think I remember because it was, like, A month after September 11th happened, Um, we moved from Vancouver to San Bernardino, California. And then I spent like my high school years there before going to San Diego for college.
1: Okay, so San Bernardino, like we let's talk about that. What what was that like? We're talking like San Bernardino proper.
2: Right, we're talking like Inland Empire, like Highland, California. Okay. Um, During the four years I was there, I think. This is, like, a little speculative, but from what my teachers told me, the crime rate, like, surpassed Compton that year, or at least my senior year. So it was kind of rough growing up or going to high school, but it was, it was chill. We just didn't really walk around. You had to, like, drive everywhere.
1: Oh, really? So, so were, were you ever witnessed any kind of, like, violent crime or anything? Did you ever feel threatened?
2: There was a kid that got jumped in my high school once, like, in a little parking lot. Um, and I kind of caught the tail end of that, but, and I was like mugged one time, but I mean, other than that, it was just like regular sort of high school experience. I think.
1: Okay. So mugged, like, what does that mean? Someone held you at like knife point or?
2: Uh, yeah, it was, I guess it was knife point. He like flashed it at me and I just didn't really think of anything about it. I didn't have that much money on me. I was still in high school. I just kind of gave it to him and went.
1: And that was it. He, he, so he didn't, like, physically harm you?
2: I think he called me a motherfucker and he left.
1: And that was and it. And that was cool. And, yeah. you, and you were not, like, were you traumatized by this? Or was it just sort of, like, in a quick incident and that was it?
2: I think the trauma, like, came, like, later, but it wasn't. It's funny. As, like, as I'm talking about it, I'm, like, recalling it now. It wasn't a big deal. I think I just, like, told my dad about it and it was fine.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's, like, it's weird how, uh, when stuff like that happens, you know, and it can be a variety of different experiences, but like it never quite unfolds the way that you think it would. You know, like I always envision myself, like if someone ever tried to hold me a gunpoint or a knife point or tried to attack me, like I have all these fantasies about how I would behave. But right. then when the actual thing happens, it's usually like quick and weird and, you know, you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, it's weird. I was reading what uh, Tao Lin just recently had something on Bakela about. Um, I think he, like, live-tweeted or, live blogged watching The Hobbit. And he got mugged, like, on the way there or something. And there were, like, two guys describing it. And the way you were describing it was felt kind of The away, like, it happened to me way back when. It was just kind of, like, a hiccup in time. Something you kind of, like, deal with. You got to adapt to.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Suddenly, And then, like, suddenly, like, you don't have, like, the $40 in your wallet. And then you're just... Still walking, <laughs> you know,
2: like, right?
1: Um, I kind of keep going. So okay, so you grew up in Canada, uh, in like Vancouver? Do you? Have...
2: Oh no, no, it's uh, Vancouver, Washington.
1: Oh, so Vancouver, Washington. Like... I'm sorry, I misheard you, or I'm, I'm my brain just went straight to Canada. So you were up in like Seattle area, right? Uh,
2: it's like two, three hours away from Seattle. <laughs> okay, it's, like, it's more like 15 minutes away from Portland. That uh-huh. makes more sense. Okay, so I it's, guess that's
1: this is reminding me of my conversation with uh, I think it was Brian Carr. He was like telling me he was in uh, like what was it like Amarillo, Texas, and I was like, oh, is that near Houston? And he's like, actually, it's like nine hours from Houston. So uh, <laughs> my my ge- my geography isn't always the greatest. But um, so grew up in Washington near Portland, and That's right, yeah. is, like was that uh, was that a pleasant experience? Like, what kind of kid were you?
2: Well, I'm the oldest of five, and. Um, it was a little rough growing up, a little you know, first we were very poor. And my parents were also very strict or my mother was least, And so growing up was kind of just I wanna say just I was kind of a, a quiet kid, shy for like the longest time before I kinda of broke out my shell like around late middle school, right before I like left uh, Vancouver in the area. Uh, my parents had undergone or they went through a divorce and um, I'm the oldest of five and we actually had to split up of the family in two and I think I started writing I think a little bit after that divorce when I moved to California and we moved my parent my mother um had gone lost of with my only brother Jesse and my youngest sibling Miley and my two sisters um Susanna and Vicky went with my father and myself to San Burkino.
1: Okay, so you went with your dad. That's right, yeah. Okay, and so um, that's obviously like a difficult, I mean, especially as the oldest, like did you feel a sense of uh, like heightened responsibility or anything like that?
2: For sure. I think those instincts like kind of, you know, they kind of kick in. Um, I kind of, those years, I kind of, I haven't thought back on it in a while. Um, it feels kind of good to kind of relapse to it, but I don't I remember them being hard, but I think the hardest thing was to move to, like, Vancouver, Washington, a very cold climate where you kind of, it's kind of your world, very much your world, especially with your family structure and all those kind of things to move to a totally new environment where, um, you know, being a new kid and being, like, part of the separate family, you kind of have to reform what you think is a proper way to behave. And, um, uh, that was interesting That's a huge... to kind of grow
0: up that way. Yeah.
1: Well, it's a huge change. I mean, moving, moving for a kid is, I went through that when I was a kid and I was in sixth grade and it was hugely traumatic like that alone, but doing it in the context of a divorce and splitting up a family, like that just adds like, obviously like, you know, powerful emotional layering to the whole thing. And so, um, you know, it's interesting too, like when I hear you talk about how that was, is, you know, at least part of the impetus for you starting to write. Um, I think that that's the case for a lot of writers is that at least the initial burst or whatever it is that launches people into the, like a creative trajectory is often traumatic, you know, and whether it's the death of a loved one or it's, you know, a divorce or it's whatever it happens to be. Um, like, do you look back on that set of events and think to yourself ever, you know, if that had not have happened, I would not probably be a writer or I would not be writing or do you think that it would have happened anyway?
2: I think it probably would have happened anyway. I think it's not definitely stand out for me, and it's something I kind of look back on. Um, but yeah, I think I don't know. I think I would have made the decision either way.
1: You do okay. So it didn't
2: come until. Like,
1: I'm sorry. Say again. I'm
2: sorry. Go ahead, bro. Oh, I said the decision to be a writer didn't come until like college.
1: Oh, it didn't. Yeah,
2: but you were. I started writing college when I was fourteen, but. When you were 14.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think, I mean, maybe it's just a function of adolescence and natural inclination too, but like 14 seems to be about the age when people who write start to write, and it's often poetry, you know?
2: Yeah, very bad poetry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's no other kind when you're 14, I don't think, unless you're like, I guess, uh, you know, some sort of prodigy, but. Um, so what was like, what was the experience like when you moved to San Bernardino and you're the new kid and you're, you're kind of shy and bookish, um, you know, and, and it's not necessarily the greatest, uh, environment. It's not the safest place, at least the way that you described it. Like, was it a really difficult transition? Did you have a hard time making friends and stuff like that? Or did you find your way relatively quickly?
2: Well, I think the first year I was there was kind of like a depressing year. I didn't really do much or don't really recall much of it. But eventually I started making a really, a really great friends. I think the people that live there are wonderful because everyone's um, trying to, like, build a community to kind of keep everyone positive. And I don't know, that's at least my experience with the few friends I had there. And it was, you know, you spend most of your time driving around. and It's mostly desert there. So we just kind of, like, I don't know, try to... Uh, again, it's into too much hygiene. Because I remember most of the time, my friends and I would just drive around and go to the orange groves and kind of pick oranges and throw them at each other. And that was like, our recreation. <laughs>
1: <place>. <laughs> just throwing fresh produce at one another—that seems that's, right. Uh, but that's,
2: it's actually a great place to live, just because I, don't know, I think we were all motivated to like get the fuck out of there. You know, close friends that I did have were, and we go back every now and then. But we always talk about Camarillo. as just it's like something we survived. I still have some friends that live there.
1: And so you got out and went to San Diego, you said, for college?
2: Oh, yeah, I went to UCSD.
1: Okay, so how did that happen? Just You just decided that was where you are going to land?
2: or? Yeah, it was just kind of random. I just kind of applied to everywhere far away, I guess, or I got a good distance. And then I got into San Diego and I felt like it was a good decision had like a couple friends also go on there and kind of just worked out.
1: And it worked out. Okay. And so when you got there, were you uh, like right away, were you on a track to be a writer? Like were you studying English or creative writing or something?
2: No, I was actually a psych major. Um, I actually didn't become a writing major until I actually had a a crush on this girl and we took like a poetry class together. And I think in that moment I decided to like change majors because I felt like a good, do well or excel in the field, or at least in the major on campus, and then I ended up figuring out that I had a real knack for it and a sincere like, desire to kind of improve.
1: Okay, so yeah, like okay, so let's get into that moment because that seems interesting to me. Like you say, you you realize you had a knack for it. Like was this does this mean that like you were getting positive feedback from fellow students and teachers, or did you have some sort of insight as you were actually sitting there trying to write where you're like. This is coming easily to me, or do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did you how did you realize your own talent? I guess.
2: Well, I think so. When I was in it was like around 2005 ish. I was still kind of like a shy kind of guy. I spent most of my time in like a library. I was kind of watching movies in like the video library, checking out kind of weird books. And we also had a very, I guess, experimental program at UCSC. It was at one point, Eileen my was there. And Joyce Springer, Ray Armentrout's there now.
1: I'm sorry, what did you say?
2: And I, Ray Armentrout, she, she's a professor. She won the Pulitzer Prize in, in like '09, I believe. Okay. And because of like interactions with those guys, I kind of got interested. Um, but I, I guess it was just I had a summer course once, and I think I was, I was a lit major, a lit writing major, for about a year. But I was just fucking around. I wasn't taking it seriously. Just kind of getting A's in courses and not really thinking about it as a career or something I really believed in. And I remember I had a course with Ellie Lee Gutt. She's the author of um, The Beautifully Worthless and IHOP Papers, a uh, really wonderful writer. And our assignment was to rewrite a story based on this one song by P.J. Harvey um, called Rhythming. It's also the name of that album. Uh, Kate Schatz had ran an entire book on that one song and I wrote like a kind of a, a thriller as like an assignment. I remember in the last of the class, Allie like gave me the assignment back with like, you know, the you got the whole red pen on the back of the page and just telling me how she thought it was a real deal. And it was like kind of cliche and kind of cheesy but in that, like a lot. And I think after that, I kind of because I admired her work so much. I kind of decided to pursue it a little more seriously.
1: You know, no, it's like interesting because whether it happens in high school, it can, it can happen at any point almost in a person's life. But, uh, it, you know, and it often happens where it's a teacher, but when somebody tells you that you're good at something, especially somebody whose opinion matters to you or whose opinion you trust, like that can have a huge, huge impact. Like when you think about like, you know, that, that changed your whole life, you know, <laughs> I mean, it affects yeah, I mean You get
2: amped up. It's like,
1: Theater. yeah that's nice um so where do you get it from like where do you get your creative talent from like do you have is or either of your parents creative no i'm
2: like the black sheep in my family always i'm like kind of a weird one
1: that's weird because like you know usually the eldest is like the uh like the, the do-gooding uh like rule uh keeping hyper do you know what i'm saying like isn't that the way that it usually is supposed to work out
2: yeah you're totally right I was supposed to I was in line to try to become like a lawyer or something that's what my parents was so actually named Richard to make a lot of money and I, don't know, it's a, I thought that was, I thought was kind, of, kind of funny
1: Wait your parents named you Richard because they thought that was a money making name
2: yeah they wanted me to be wealthy that'll be like a prophecy for me to be fulfilled <laughs> because
1: they I named you they because, a writer, because they named you Richard that was the that was the how they were, right. that was the prophecy.
2: I think that was part of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Did were like were you named after somebody that, that was wealthy who was named Richard? Like
2: uh. So you know what? I think I um, my grandmother just went through like a book with my parents, like you know a, a book of baby names, and I just really liked the name Richard, which is really bizarre to me. But what well, I mean, has, has the word "rich" in it, right? Yeah, I guess it's something that come out of that. <laughs>
1: So um, so n- neither of your parents, like you can't look at either of your parents and say, oh, maybe it came from here. You have no idea. You just sort of are, are in an, like a genetic anomaly in your family. Well,
2: my parents are both, um, I mean, they're both foreigners in all. Like, they They both immigra- uh, immigrated here.
1: They both then, um, I'm, so- I- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't understand you. You're kind of mumbling. What, what did you say?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. They both moved here or they immigrated here from Vietnam. Uh-huh. And so the the purpose for us uh, growing up was always get a good education, get a good job, raise a good family. Right. And so to kind of go off course, like uh um, I don't know. I I really like it. I don't think my my. I know my dad has, He has my book now, or he's going to get it soon. But I'm not sure if he's going to like read it. Definitely not my mother.
1: Your mother will not read it? She probably won't, no. Like, are they... Why not? Like, are they like... Do they think that, like, this line of work is somehow not appropriate for you?
2: No, I don't think they disregard it. I just don't think they would... It's more indifferent than anything else.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, I've published a couple of books and... Uh, I look at sales numbers or I talk to family members and it's like uh, it's uh, it's very easy to discern who's read the book and who hasn't, you know, and it's amazing that you can go through all the trouble that it takes to write a book. And, you know, family members won't even read it. <laughs> you know, like, Right. It's strange. I, I mean, then again, I guess it's not strange. Like people have to want to read a book. It's hard to force it on somebody, you know, or, or you know, very few people read out of a sense of obligation, I guess I should say, even if it's familial obligation.
2: Right, and that kind of stuff doesn't, like, affect me either. I think, um, I know they both love me. I just, you know, I understand that's not their thing, and I think that's cool.
1: Okay, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, is there any tension between you and your parents? Like, you guys get along.
2: I get along with my father. I'm not very close with, um, my mom. But, I mean, we uh we barely have a relationship, but we're family. Yeah, I mean... I'm it... closer my father.
1: And, I mean, obviously that has something to do with the fact that you moved to San Bernardino with him. Like, when that when that split happened, was that, like, the source of why you're not, like, close with your mom?
2: Totally, yeah, that's totally correct. That that went, like, is still kind of apparent, I guess, in our immediate family.
1: So, wait, so did you have to choose, or was it just, like, you were assigned? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did the kids have a choice in terms of who they went with?
2: The kids actually did have a choice. It was kind of a... It was a crazy night. It all kind of happened in one night. Like yeah, we that? all we all we all
1: chose. Oh, that's t- and then like it was just like the the kids had to make the call. Like you're sitting there and you're like 14, and it's like, and who will you go with? Was basically, you know what I'm saying? Is that how it worked?
2: That did how yeah yeah I guess it did.
1: Holy cow, that's a big decision to put on a 14 year old. You know like.
2: Uh, we you know, we all go along okay. And um I don't know, like all my siblings now, they're all like little geniuses, you know, like my my sister Vicky is um I think she's in China now. I don't know, I haven't talked to her in like a couple of years, but I think she's just volunteering for something. And my younger or my sister Susanna, who's just a you uh, younger than me she's um I think she's a journalism major now at University of Montana. And my two siblings who I've been away from for a long time, Jesse, my only brother, he's, I think he's a film major now in, uh, in Portland somewhere. And my lean, I think she just started high school, just started like her own graphic novel. So I'm really proud of like each and every one of them. They kinda, I think each and every one of us were kind of like loner kids in our own right. and we kind of took a lot of um, comfort in each other, but we each of us separately were very much lone wolves for a little while.
1: Well, and it sounds like each of it sounds like you've got like there's a lot of creativity humming in your family, at least among the children, right?
2: Yeah, that's what I've seen so far,
1: for sure. Well, so you're not that much of a you're not that much of a black sheep. I mean, you know, you're or, or if you are, you're going to be joined shortly by your graphic novelist sister, and you know, for right. you know what I'm saying? For sure, yeah. So you, but you don't sense any like repressed creative impulse in your parents that just couldn't be realized due to circumstance. Like you don't look at your mom or your dad and think to yourself, like, you know what? Given different circumstances and a different oppor- you know opportunity set, like my mom might have been a writer, or might have tried to do something creative, or my dad might have had. You don't see any, I, any of that from them.
2: Well, I get more of a like a work ethic sort of thing from them. Like my dad, working like twelve hour days, and you know. When he came home he just saw he was always really jolly. And so I kinda of got that from him. And my mom did the same thing. She used to work like at Kmart and I always really admired her just kind of I don't know, being a mom and being able to work at a job she doesn't necessarily like, but being able to do it anyway.
1: Yeah. So do you like how do you work? Like now, like you you saw that growing up and then like when you approach your writing work or you approach your day job, like Uh, Like, how do you fit it all together? Like, what does it look like for you in, in, in terms of, like, how you actually get books done? When do you do the work?
2: Well, work ethic to me is, like, everything I like. I actually didn't get my degree at UCSD. I, like, I think I had, like, 20 units or something left. But I dropped out early because I didn't want to take another student loan. And to work, or I realized then without, like, I guess, getting an MSA, the only way to get be serious as a writer, at least for me, was to kind of go at it with everything I had, or with the knowledge that I would be doing it for the rest of my life. So um, I developed like a pretty a pretty rigorous schedule: um, wake up early or stay up late. Especially when I started and when I dropped out of school was around 2009. Um, I had like two. I had two jobs before I eventually worked at a movie theater for a long time. But it was mostly working at a movie theater and staying up late at night until 5 a.m. and passing out and kind of repeating the process until I had something that I enjoyed.
1: So, okay, so wait, you worked at a movie theater. What are you, like? What were you doing? Were you like an usher or were you just like working like the popcorn stand or were you a projectionist?
0: Yeah,
2: a little bit of everything, you know, like you kind of tear tickets, you sell tickets you. I worked for landmark papers in the whole for a while. For a little bit, I worked for a state theater. It was actually a pretty good job to kind of get us going with writing because it allowed me to kind of make enough to kind of get it by and had enough time to kind of focus on reading and writing and kind of learning what I wanted to do.
1: Were you reading on the job?
2: Yeah, that's one of the best perks about having a movie theater job, I think, was that I had like a new book with me every day. It was mostly just downtime.
1: Right. I was going to say, everyone's in the theater. Like, what are you doing? You're probably just sitting there.
2: I'm reading. I'm reading like Dennis Cooper on my break. Who asked me, what you got there? Like a naked man.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, um, okay. And so, you know, as far as like working in the theater goes, did like, do you find cinema like inspiring? Are you a movie junkie too? I mean, obviously at least a little bit if you're working in a movie theater, right?
2: for sure i am a little bit of a movie geek um i enjoy geeking out over movies i kind of like do the whole thing where i call like directors and nerd out on like trivia and stuff and a lot of my writing actually are like kind of weird fan fiction of like little scenes i like or things like that
1: okay so who are some of your directors who do you, who do you like really like lionize
2: um well, like, early on, you know, I was into, like, Lynch and Herzog. And I really like David Cronenberg. And I actually like the different philosophies that Cronenberg has with, like, the two Davids, like David Lynch and David Cronenberg, they're different philosophies on film. Like, I think when Inland Empire came out, Lynch talked about how... Um, because I don't think that film, like, has subtitles, even when you have the DVD menu. And he wanted, a like, a viewer YouTube- to... Go through the entire movie without pause. Like he didn't want to do, I think chapter selections either. But I think they might have had it on there. And Cronenberg's take is to kind of go by, um, go through a DVD as if someone reading a novel where you can't take pause in it, go out, leave, have something to eat, and come back to it. And I've always enjoyed like differing opinions on like how to approach like a narrative in a movie. So which but one? Are I guess you?
1: Which one do you agree with more? Like, do you Or do you have, like, have you found yourself implementing one or both um, of those approaches into your fiction?
2: Uh, I try to, yeah. I, I think I agree more with David Cronenberg. I did glitch and I think that's cool. But I'm, usually I write in, like, little spurts anyway. So, and usually I try to write episodically, where everything's kind of self-contained, but all together at the same time.
1: So, do you? I mean, do you prefer um, reading books that work in those kind of short bursts? Like, because like that's that's kind of how I find myself these days. Is I find myself really enjoying uh, fiction or nonfiction that works in kind of those little tiny self-contained bursts. Like, it, is that? I mean, is that your taste as a reader? And then, can you talk a little bit about? I don't know like how that style is born. Like, I've put a lot of thought into why that's appealing to me. You know why is my brain receptive to this, where it might not be receptive to like, you know, a block paragraph that runs on for six pages? Um, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot to explore there. Whether it's the internet that's influencing us, or the fact that we're reading on phones, or you know,
2: like what do you? No, think? I'm with you, man. Like, um, I think that's the reason why I do it is, I think when I started to write, I wasn't really writing stories. I was just writing these little beautiful moments. But had no fucking point to them. They were just like two people hanging, like hanging out, talking. There might have been like sex involved or something. And I really didn't get too much out of it. And then when I started, I guess applying something of a storyline, I had a lot of trouble working on how to make something stick or interesting for a long time. But I was still very much like in love with the characters I was wor- I was working with. So eventually, I started just making. Approaching every story I was working on um, was kind of like the same as if I was working on, like on a TV show where everything was kind of sliding depending on kind of working on each other, building. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not being very articulate right now, but I think when I approach it in narrative, it's to kind of make these characters go through these things and see if they could like either survive on more I don't know overcome by them i guess i guess
1: that's how story is okay but what about okay what about the the larger narrative do you know what i'm saying like i understand like putting characters into these like little scenes um and and enjoying that and like feeling an attachment to the characters and feeling invested in the particular scene but if you're working in short bursts and you're trying to sustain some sort of narrative uh, and to achieve some sort of narrative cohesion over the long haul Like, how do you do that? Do you know what I'm saying? Is it trial and error? Do you have some sort of outline or grand design in your head as you go along? Or is it just kind of an intuitive construction?
2: I think surprisingly enough, like, I do it kind of intuitively. I think I have, like, an end. Like, I know what's going to happen. Like, I outline. I guess I do do the outline thing where I do beginning, middle, and end. But I try not to stay too strict to it. Um, I kind of just go with what I think will work best when I come up with the idea. I take a lot of notes from like books I read and I try to like kind of piece stuff
1: to get almost a collage. So wait a minute, you take notes from books that you read and you like, and like, does that mean you're like copying out passages that you like? Or are you just like seeing certain things that you like techniques or, you know, uh, transitions or something that you might like in, in, in fiction and then you're just writing down what, like how does this, how does this look?
2: It just looks, yeah, my notebook is just, like, a shark's belly. Just a bunch of weird lines of things that I get from, like, straight lines, a very short burst of kind of stuff from books I like, and, like, overheard conversation, usually. And usually, my at the very start of, like, stories I do, either come from one of the two of those little lines, and I kind of just build off those. It's a lot, I'm not sure... At one point, I tried like attempt like the cut up method, which I think Burroughs did. Yeah, uh, with um, with just stuff that I had uh, instead of using newspapers, but with uh, fiction that I enjoyed, and I kind of just developed my own style from there.
1: So, are you a person like? Is this the, this notebook of yours? Is this something that you're carrying around with you at all times?
2: For sure, it definitely. Is. It's like a moleskin. I have it with me everywhere I go
1: um okay so you're like walking around and like if you're like riding a bus or you're on i don't know what do they have up in seattle do they have like public transport up there or is it mostly people in cars <laughs> yeah we
2: got um we got buses i carpool to work but um yeah, that's no that where we do bus
1: okay and so you're just like you're overhearing something you're writing it down like pretty pretty in a pretty disciplined way
2: yeah i try not to be rude about it or if i overhear someone it's not obvious i'm writing what they're saying but or sometimes I use my phone to send a little text to
1: myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phones are good. Like I you know, now that I mean like for all the there, there's a lot of downsides to having a smartphone in terms of like not being able to kind of disconnect yourself from the world and it, it sort of makes you constantly available, you know, in work capacities and everything else, but like you can record stuff, you can do voice memos, you can text yourself like it's sort of useful as a information gathering uh, or research tool, you know.
2: No, yeah, I agree. with you. That's how I use it. Um,
1: okay, so in terms of like your like, just to kind of finish out your youth or whatever, um, like, did you go through any kind of like crazy rebellious period? Like, did you ever do a bunch of drugs or do anything super crazy in your life where you had like a stretch of years where, um, yeah, I don't know, you were uh, selling cocaine or anything?
2: <laughs> Not really, man. I mean, I was kind of like um, me and a few friends I had. I, I don't know, at uh, high school, we were all like AP kids. And we kind of did all the academic stuff. Like, I was, I did mock trial. I did Harvard Model Congress. I was like on the inaugural boys volleyball team, you know, just trying to build a rhythm to get to college. I was like that kid. And then I did all the, um, I guess, all the excess stuff when I got to college.
1: Yeah, that's kind of how I was. This is the thing, though. See, I, I feel like people who grow up and really like cosmopolitan city environments tend to be exposed more to more, I mean, more things. I guess that makes sense. But like, I grew up in the Midwest. I hadn't seen anything until I got to college, you know, like the most I saw was like, maybe like a, a few joints and like, you know, some bad domestic beer, but it wasn't like, you know, (laughs) it wasn't wasn't like there were a lot of opportunities to do more, or at least they, there weren't in my like particular sphere. Uh, I'm sure there were some kids who had access to things I wasn't aware of, but it just wasn't pervasive. And then, you know, I have friends from like New York City, for example, uh, who, they you know, they they got all of their craziness out of their system when they were like in ninth and tenth grade. And then they got to college and, um, you know, it was sort of over for them. And then there were the rest of us kids from like the Midwest and elsewhere who, you know, like freshman year went completely wild because, you know, we never had the chance (laughs) prior to that. Right. So yeah. what was that? I mean, did you have that experience when you were in college, like in at least in the beginning?
2: Well, I wasn't, like, shell-shocked by, like, anything that I saw. I think most of the time I was – I'm kind of doing the same thing. I was involved with this, like, food co-op collective thing on campus where I worked at a vegan vegetarian food store, and I was kind of exposed to a lot of stuff by just working at that place and being friends with them. all the lovely people that worked there. End up being like a second family kind of. Um, but I don't know. We mostly we kept it pretty mellow.
1: Yeah, and are you a vegan? Was like you were working at this food co-op? Were you a vegetarian or whatever?
2: Uh, I'm not one now. I think I was like a vegan for like six months, and I just kind of lived off the food that we sold there. But I just I couldn't do it anymore. You could. I think I was like hungry one day with my buddy Ian, and um, we just had like a big uh, food political fight with a friend of ours. And we were both starving, and we were outside of McDonald's and felt it was ridiculous that we were both starving. So we went inside and got like two double cheesers, and I stopped being a vegan since I was like six, seven years ago.
1: That was it. You just you just killed it at McDonald's. <laughs>
2: yeah, killed it. I died at McDonald's. But, you know, I I like veganism. I just don't think um, it just didn't work for me.
1: Well, it's hard to do. I mean, you know, like I did year. I mean, I probably did two or three years of my life where I was pretty good. Um, you know, but I mean, it's like, that means you're not wearing leather. That means a lot of different things. So, I mean, even though, even in those years where I wasn't necessarily eating any animal products, I was still had shoes that like violated the strictest interpretation of what that means. I mean, if, if someone's truly doing that, that's difficult. And it's especially difficult when you get into like social environments, you know, where people aren't doing that, you know, it makes it, it makes it. No,
2: I was going to say when I, when I, uh, Uh, Like when you get invited to someone's place And they offer you food I feel horrible when I don't take
1: it Yeah no I see That's that's where I've like I've kind of I mean I've come to like You you sort of have to figure You have to figure it out for yourself But like I've gone through Enough different iterations of this Through the years that like For me personally now It's like I I think like 85 or 90% of the time Maybe you know somewhere in there I'm I'm probably eating vegetarian But like if I'm at somebody's house Whatever they serve I'll eat and if I'm out at a restaurant and I want to get a steak some night, then, like, you know, I'll have a steak every once in a blue moon. But, like, that's just how I have to do it. I think batting 100% is just – that's what makes it difficult. If you give yourself a little bit of latitude and you, you do – you eat well, like, 80% of the time, like, that's better than nothing. Like, you know, that's how I rationalize it.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh, the way my girlfriend and I eat, we're, well, like, 90% of the time now, but occasionally uh, we fry up a steak and – we enjoy that together.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, you know, I think like the 85% rule is good. It allows for a little bit of wiggle, but like most of the time you're healthy, you know. That's
2: like, a good number, too, 85
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And like that's how I, I mean. every once in a while I'll have a cigarette, but like very, it's very, very rare, you know, but it makes it nice. I believe in like, I, you know, I don't know. I, there's a part of me, I guess, that thinks it's unhealthy to be too strict or pure. Like, I think it's important sometimes to stray and do things like that. I don't know. That's sort of common sense. But
2: Oh yeah, you gotta, you gotta break the rules and not. Yeah.
1: There's, it's just, I don't like it when people are so uptight that they can't do anything, you know? And I don't like it when I'm that way, you know, and you start to get too pure, you know, pure about the way that you live your life. It's, you just become boring.
2: Yeah. No, I agree with that.
1: Um, okay. So, Book, publication, and, like, internet literature and, like, how you've managed to um, find your way into print and how you've managed to build, like, a community around your work and meet other writers. Like, talk about how the internet has uh, worked for you or, you know, how it's impacted your writing life.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Okay, so I dropped out of school. And um, I think right when I was doing that, I started, like, a blog. Uh, it was, like, a WordPress at the time. And actually how I met my girlfriend was she found me through my blog and, like, left a really sweet comment, and we started networking from there. But I I think to start with me, um, I found this girl named Anna C. or Anna Carice. She's She also lives in San Diego, or she did. I, mean, I don't live in San Diego anymore. Uh, she lives in San Diego now. And now uh, she's kind of like a... We just had her book come out, Baby Babe, and we started hanging out and started making these videos together. And at the same time when I was, like, kind of hanging out with her and we were putting videos online, um, I was also having a rigorous schedule where I would submit to, like, hundreds of places. Until so eventually, I think I started becoming known to people just because I had a lot of places that, like uh, except my work, which was like phenomenal to me. And I think Anna and I just kind of, you know, we kind of fucked around and had a buckle off on just shooting ourselves a video. And eventually, I guess people started taking notes and we had like a little ebook together. And, um, I decided to move to Seattle and I think the week that I was moving, I got an email from, uh, my publisher now, Jeremy Spencer. And, he, uh, accepted my book of short stories, um, which happened, I think, like, two years after I dropped out of school. So it was, like, a kind of a two-year old deal of me just kind of going to work at that movie theater job, you know, writing every day, submitting everywhere, um, kind of chatting with people, doing a lot of, like, video chats and doing a lot of videos and just kind of fucking around having fun.
1: Yeah, but, you know, that's the way it's, like, more and more, that's the way things tend to work these days in publishing is that, you know, the internet plays some sort of central role, at least in finding readership and meeting other people and finding publishers even. And, um, you know, it's, and it's also just like taking advantage. I mean, that's what this podcast is. Like all of a sudden you've got these tools and you've got these like high definition cameras and you've got iMovie and you've got access to all this software. And, um, you know, people are just sort of playing with it and the results, uh, I guess can be some somewhat surprising or unexpected and, takes you in directions you might not have anticipated you know like you might not have like or or let me me put the question to you like when you sat down to make those videos were you thinking like this is going to help me get published
2: (laughs) not at all actually we were just meant to communicate with other people like across the country like i think it started because like megan boyle took she invented this thing called the Stephen Tully dirk shot where you just like drop a, a shot of whiskey or tequila and, like, four local, that energy alcoholic drink. And she did it to make somebody laugh. And then we did a video to respond to that. And I think a, another friend we had that lived in Little Rock did a similar video. And most of the time when we were putting projects like that out together, when we were collaborating, was just to kind of say hi to each other.
1: Yeah, it was for fun.
2: I it was awesome. Yeah.
1: Um... Okay, and so so you get the publishing, you get you know you get your book published two years after you dropped out of college. Was there like a sense of like uh, triumph? There must have been a good sense of triumph since you dropped out and two years later you were finding your way into print.
2: I just felt I just felt thankful. I didn't really um, I felt like a good like personal victory, but I also didn't want to let like, let it deter um a work at all. You know, kind of keep going at the pace that was going. But yeah, man, it felt it felt great.
1: And so. Um, and so then in terms of like how you, you know, cause like obviously the, the public, the publishing offer came as a result of what you were publishing elsewhere online, whether, you know, short pieces of fiction or whatever. Um, and you said that you had a rigorous uh, schedule of submission or, a, you know, rigorous kind of um, method that you were applying. Is that right? I mean, like, how, how did that, what did that look like? Like how, like how many a day were you keeping like an Excel spreadsheet where you're keeping track of every place that you had submitted to, or like, what did it, what did that look like?
2: Um, well, most days I, like, would come home from work, like, around, uh like, after midnight, usually around 1 a.m., and I would either be working on a story or editing a story. And then from there, I would I would have a list that I would work on in my moleskin, where they're just places that I liked that I was reading from. Like, I think initially it was, like, Ellie May and Paint, and I was reading a lot of stuff from, my town and Mooden House. I'm just trying to get published on places that I like. I think my first, the first place that took me was Frank Hinton's MetaZone. And then uh, Dirk's solicited mm-hmm. me for Pop Serial. And through Pop Serial, like, I met a bunch of really cool people. And I don't know, eventually the publications like started to build up. Um, they felt kind of cool. And I think the best part of it was meeting all these people from the Internet all online and everywhere across the country. Mm-hmm. Eventually... Starting our yeah. own journals and kind of soliciting
1: each other. And so, what about like the okay? So, what about these relationships that you form with people online? Because it's obviously a very active community. I think the people that you're talking about like fall under the alt lit tent, if there is such, you know, if if you can categorize it, um, you know. But like, what about yeah, yeah. what about actual human interaction? You know, how much of it is is strictly limited to you know video chat and you know computer based communication, and how much um, you know, how how many of these people have you actually gone on to meet and develop actual human relationships with in real life?
2: I would say maybe like a small percentage of them, but when it actually does happen. Like I mentioned earlier, um, Francis, my girlfriend, I found her because she commented my blog. Um and I think I wrote a story and she said that she liked it and wrote something like sweet. and we started like exchanging emails. And then you know, then she got very much into the whole Facebook thing and the phone
1: thing. And, okay, yeah. So let's take right. this is interesting. So she she commented on your blog, and then you just start chit chatting with her uh, on email, Facebook, and then at what yeah. po- at what point is this like? And, and were you in the same town? I mean, like where where was she and where were you geographically?
2: She was in Seattle, and oh. I was in San
1: Diego. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So now now that the move to Seattle is starting to come into focus,
2: <laughs> so, yeah. So,
1: so at what point does this leave the, um, you know, like the cyber realm or whatever, and and, and escalate into like an actual human interface?
2: <laughs> it took like uh, I was actually dating someone else when we started talking, um, and that kind of went sour, and then Francis started dating someone, so I was kind of waiting to meet her. And then when we finally did meet, like. It was scary, man. It was. I took a trip to Seattle. It was like my first time ever being in a city just to meet um, Francis. who we were at the time was you know, becoming like my best friend online. And then when we did meet, it was it was wonderful. She was dating someone at the time, but like we didn't we didn't do anything. It was just more like a secret intimacy we shared, and we kept in touch for a while. And eventually, we had an online or we had a long distance relationship when she left um, her boyfriend.
1: Okay, so wait a minute, know. so wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, let me, you know, know. You, you go to Seattle to visit her, and you meet in secret. So her boyfriend at the time was not aware that you were meeting,
2: and you... No, go- no, no, he was, he was totally aware of it. I was. I actually stayed at his place. Oh, you did? And then, like, our affection, I guess, or the way we felt about each other was secret.
1: Okay, so... Like,
2: okay. Oh, all I meant to say was, like, we didn't, like, she didn't see her boyfriend or anything.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So you went and you visited, which she was actually dating someone else. You stayed with them... And you just got to meet. So, uh, was it when you when you finally met her in person? Was there anything surprising, or did the the depth of your internet exchanges um, give you a, a full picture of who she was to the point where when you actually met in person, it was like, oh yeah, that's you, and I'm not surprised at all by anything.
2: Yeah, I felt actually felt really calming. Uh, I thought I was anticipating. Of course, I was nervous and kind of very anxious to anticipating, like, meeting her, like, this whole time. But she's my best friend, and we kind of developed that uh, just through, like, letters and through books and talking online and talking on the phone. And so when I got to sit down and see her face-to-face, it just felt really natural like I was just, uh, like, my best friend was there in front of me, and we kind of just went on from there. Yeah, because like
1: I have, I've had this conversation multiple times, like uh, or at least somewhere somewhere along these lines, and it's it needs to be said because I think like the the cliche or like the common knowledge is that the internet it leads itself uh, or lends itself to all these kind of superficial interactions and that what's happening on your computer screen isn't quote unquote real, and I think there's a lot about that that's defensible, you know, and I think there's a lot about that that is true, but what's also true is the fact that. You know reading people and exchanging letters, whether they're emails or whatever, or uh comments on blogs or reading somebody's deepest thoughts and then going back and forth in i you know g chat or whatever it is you know like that that's a legitimate way to get to know somebody and it might even be less superficial than uh you know some face to face interactions you know what I'm saying and so I don't know. I've had the experience multiple times where I've gotten to know somebody in quotes, uh, you know, on my computer screen, and then you meet them in person. And I, I, I honestly can't recall a time where I've had that particular scenario play itself out, and I've been like shocked by what I saw in person. I've always been like, "Oh yeah, that's that's who you are." I'm not. This is exactly what I was expecting. You know, <laughs>
2: like it's kind of like meeting like <laughs> meeting people that you've been talking to online in real life almost feels like meeting like a celebrity where you kind of have to or i don't know that's how i've every time i experience it it always feels like meeting like a very personal celebrity that you always wanted to meet and then everything kind of calms down
1: yeah that's so true that is so true like people that uh like you go to awp or something like that where there's like especially in the writing world where there's like this big collection of people that you've seen you know flash across your computer screen however many times and then you know, I, rec- right. I recognize everybody. You know, you'd see them walk by, and I'm calling their name out, and it takes a second, and you know, uh, but that's a very good way of putting it. It's like meeting like a little like personal celebrity.
2: <laughs> and you can make eyes with people that you know you've never met before, but you know exactly who they are. It's amazing.
1: Yeah. So, uh, has there ever been an exception to the rule? Like, have you ever met somebody uh, in real life that you knew from the computer where you were like, "Ugh, this is not what I was anticipating."
2: Uh, no, but I've, you know, I've had experience where, like, I wasn't acting, like, I was, when I met Tao for the first time, I met him with uh, my friend, Anna. he recognized me, because we did, I had, like, a little journal, and he had a piece in it, and I was, I think I spent the whole time kind of geeking out, or, yeah, I think me and my friend and were totally, like, geeking out around it, and we ended up, like, hanging out that night, but I think the entire time we were hanging out, I was just kind of like a fanboy or something. Awful, like, yeah.
1: So you're a big fan of Tao's?
2: Yeah, man, I, I respect his work a lot.
1: Okay, and so where did you guys meet?
2: Uh he had a reading in Antonio, California. Which well, is pretty much San Diego. And it was like just in a small bookshop and he read from it was during his Richard Gates tour back in twenty ten. Right. And now uh, he came I think after the reading he like came out to us and uh, he said said my name, and we like introduced each other, and just you know started shooting the shit, and then we ended up um, crashing in my place. He actually slept in my bed; I slept on the couch um, because we had a cat, and he's allergic to cats. And then, but we spent that evening watching the documentary "Planet B Boy" together
1: what with doc- my roommate. What's the name of it?
2: It's a documentary. It's called "Planet B Boy." I actually wrote a story about it it's in the book. It's a uh, wonderful man. You should check out. It's a uh, documentary about this. Um, international breakdancing competition called Battle of the Year and it's like a worldwide con- or, Yeah, it's a worldwide competition with different countries representing a team that they send to Battle of the Year and it's wonderful
1: so are you into breakdancing or is it just something like the documentary itself is, is fascinating
2: I think I started getting into breakdancing because of that like movie but I, can, I don't know anybody or anything I just like that documentary Oh, you do? Okay. In case I watch YouTube videos or something.
1: But you're not like a good... Are you a good dancer or anything like that? Uh, No way. No? Okay. In fact, that's a question I feel like I should probably ask more writers. I wonder what the percentage of writers out there who are actually very good dancers. It's got to be... I'm guessing it's a small number.
2: (laughs) I feel like one out of four has
1: to be. That's generous, man. I'm thinking like one out of like 20. (laughs) Um, but I could be, it,
2: gonna...
1: yeah, Perfect. I do. I do. You know, but I mean, maybe it's like, maybe that's just like humanity in general. I think that's a very rare talent you know, to be able to move like that. But, um, so, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned Tao, uh, and you know, there are obviously a lot of different writers. Um, yeah, I mean, or, or let me ask you this because I always kind of categorize it broadly and I call it lit or whatever, internet literature. Um, are you comfortable with that? Like, does that, Categorization makes sense to you, or do you feel like it's more nebulous than that and, and more boundaryless?
2: Um, I think it's more boundaryless. Like I, I'm kind of indifferent. Um, I mean, I think it's cool that everyone who's involved with all the fight concerning all it, I think they're all great. Um, I don't know. I think I think Tao wrote about it once. That term alt came up like around 2008 or 2009. And I think everyone just kind of went with it because it kind of gave names to what everyone was like doing it.
1: Okay, it's okay. So stop there. What was everyone doing? And what is everyone doing? You know what I'm saying? Like, what qualifies something as alt lit if that's, you know, if that can be done?
2: Oh, wow. That's a good question, man. I'm not even sure. I think we're all just kind of doing it because we're, we all want to be writers. So we all want to. I know I did it because I just, wanted to keep writing. Then I found a community where, you know, I put something on a Tumblr and it gets reblogged and then people get amped up and then, you know, new conversations are happening and new friendships are happening. But I think it's, whatever it is, it's just a bunch of people hanging out. I think Scott McClanahan said, it's like, it's like a hundred people or like 200 people, you know. But eventually, um, from what I've seen, it exists in like these little pockets where, you have, like, an era online, let's say, within, like, a Tumblr group where, like, this group will last, like, eight months and some will, like, fall out of it. And then within, like, the next two months, there are, like, new faces and new profiles online that I've never seen before. And, uh, compared to what it was, like, back in the late. It's, it's, like, kind of interesting, especially what Steve Broganbuck has done, seeing all his fans. It's been something to witness, for sure. Yeah. But I'm not sure exactly how to categorize it. I just well what about
1: okay but what about aesthetically you know what i'm saying because it is it's i mean i don't know it's a fascination to me like what is it that's drawing people what are the commonalities among people who are writing in this vein you know because there are aesthetic uh consistencies that you can see in terms of how people present themselves from a literary uh, standpoint but it's also how they present themselves in terms of like twitter and you know what i'm saying like it's the all lowercase and the no punctuation and the You know, like, so this is just people mimicking each other. That's how cultures form. I mean, that's, it just sort of happened because one person or a few people started doing it and then it sort of became this rule, right? And it's like the monotone and the kind of the flat, like emotionless deadpan kind of delivery. And, you know, I, I, I see that as like some sort of consistency among the group, though there are, you know, variations on that or, or, or even deviations,
2: Oh yeah, I, I, I hear you. It's like, I don't know, it's like I kind of see the same sort of parallels in like, um, and like I, in the music scene, I just seen like, yeah, we get a bunch of bands that come out that all sound the same. And eventually there's one or two where they kind of take, for some reason, they have that little quality where everyone like, takes like a liking. Like even most of my friends, I guess most of my older friends are writers that I know mine, they found like that community because they read how, or they read Blake Butler, and they kind of found the community that way. But I'm really not too sure how, like, and I don't like it most of the time. I kind of, it's something I'm indifferent to. But I just kind of go, I think a lot of people are producing stuff. I think quite, not too comfortable with finding what's going on, but I think a lot of people keep being productive, I think, a lead to interesting places.
1: Well, yeah, and it's like... uh... I don't know. I've always said this, but it's fun. And there's like a group of people who, you know, at least for, and the thing, the thing about the internet and and these kinds of communities and these kinds of like little mini, like micro art movements that happen is that they're so ephemeral. Like they're kind of, they go, they're here today and they they get very, people get very excited. And then I've seen it happen multiple times where suddenly it just dissipates. And there's not even really a reason for that either. You know, it's like, it's almost like you can't figure out why it happened. And then you almost can't figure out why it stopped. It just does. (laughs) yeah you know like i don't know if i mean do you feel that way cuz like i think about like certain aspects of like the, you know um you know internet culture as it pertains to uh, writing and books and literature and uh, you know there'll be like a period of like 6 months to a year where like comment culture at like my site the nervous breakdown would be like extremely intense and then you just kind of see it play itself out and people would get burnt out and then it would just go away do you know what I'm saying? And I don't know why it happened. Yeah. And I don't know why. Pe- I guess people just got exhausted because of, like, the weird social obligation that you feel to, like, respond to every piece of writing that your friends post online. But um, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's just interesting to see those cycles play themselves out. And I'll be interested to see, you know, I guess in the context of Altlet or whatever you want to call it, I'll be interested to see, like, where it goes, you know, especially because I associate that particular, you know, movement or whatever with young people at least relative to my age and you know what happens is like the altlet um 20 year olds or whatever become 30 and 40 year olds
2: you know <laughs> like yeah um i don't know yeah, what I'm, uh, I'm like waiting for someone to like do like a documentary or something about something you know with these like this crew but it'd be interesting to see i like that what you said
1: well yeah i mean i think like I, you know i was just thinking about that too it'd be fun to do like an oral history um, because you yeah. have you have all these disparate players, you know. Like I think like an oral, like and I'm talking about like a print oral history, though. I guess like you could do it on like a podcast or something, but which maybe I kind of am just by talking to all you folks. But
2: no, um, I was going to say I think you already are doing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I kind of I kind of am because I'm curious. But um, you know, in book format, you know, you have all these disparate players, and they're all you know all over the place geographically. So it's like all these kind of like people in their little rooms, you know, <laughs> like. Um, you know, not even in close proximity to one another, but like, they're all like, you know, deeply connected and creating this thing together. It's interesting.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um,
1: so what are your, like, what are your ambitions? Like, do you have a sense of like where you'd like to go? I know you, like, you know, we've been trying to schedule this interview forever and I know you have a day job that uh, makes it difficult, um, you know, for us to find time, but like, what do you do for your day job? And then like, you know, how do you envision, um, your writing life going forward, like you know people have different conceptions of that, at least the people that i 've talked to on this show were like some people are like, "You know what I love to write I, I always will do it, and i 'm always going to have my day job, and writing is going to be this thing that I do for the love of it on the side, and I never anticipate uh, making any money from it and then uh, i 've also talked to writers who like you know have uh, grand ambitions of becoming like the great American novelist and making a huge pile of money and, you know, having like the, the big huge career. Like what do you, what is your particular outlook?
2: Well, I, I grew up pretty, um, pretty humble, pretty poor. So it doesn't really matter like making too much. I think, uh, both my girlfriend and I shared like this philosophy of, I think we always need to be working hard. Like whatever we're doing, what we're writing, which we will be doing, I think for a long time, for probably the rest of our lives. But we want to, Keep working. I think that's something that I've always kind of like admired. I get a lot of stuff that I wrote for this book was like from just working in a movie theater you know, witnessing people and hanging out with people after after hours. And I think my goal is to, you know, it'd be wonderful to sustain myself with what I make from writing. But I don't think that's gonna necessarily happen. But I know I'm gonna try to just keep keep at it, keep optimizing anything I could and so try to like enjoy myself. Not to be kind of too much, depressive over.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, are you competitive? Like, do you have? Because, like, I think some writers and some artists and just some people in general like have a, a strong competitive drive, and then others are driven by different things. Like, do you find that you're competitive about it, or is it something that you feel is? I don't know. You, your motivations, are, are different than that.
2: No, I, I like to be uh, competitive with it. But I like I also like to kinda of be playful with it too. Like sometimes before I get into like a big writing session, all I do is like watch like Michael Jordan YouTube videos to kinda of get like amped up or something. And kinda of take it on almost ridiculously that way to kinda of be playful with it. But I don't know, when I No, go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna say that's like that's it's nice to hear you say that because um it can be very easy to slip into self-seriousness or just seriousness generally when it comes to writing, and um, there should be an, a, a strong element of play involved if you're going to sit down to, to work creatively. You know, and however you get there, you know, whether it's watching Michael Jordan videos or uh, breakdancing or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> I think like it's important to remember that it can be easy to forget.
0: You know,
2: very easy to forget. Yeah, you gotta you gotta motivate yourself and in any way, shape, form you can. I think if you can, you gotta do
1: it. So Michael Jordan is uh, is your, that's your secret sauce right there.
2: Yeah, that's um, that's, you exposed it, man. That's what, <laughs> I, that's what I write. That's I try, I I, tr- I,
1: tr- I, tried, to, keep- I try to do that at least once in every episode. It's like to try to uncover some um, shocking secret, but I think we've done that now. <laughs> um, well, no, I like it. It's like uh, well listen man I appreciate the uh, the time it's been fun talking with you and I congratulate you on uh you know the new book and all of your success and it'll be interesting to see um you know uh, what what you uh what you're up to in the years to come
2: Yeah thanks for thank you so much for talking with me I'm very honored
1: All right folks that's it for now that's Richard Chim go get his story collection and it it's called You Private Person it is available now from Scrambler Books You can find Richard online at richardchim.blogspot.com. You can find him on the Twitter where his handle is at Novel, and he's on the Facebook as well. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the official app of other people, the official Other People app. It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It is free of charge. And, uh, hey, please take a moment to rate and review the show over at iTunes. Please do that. You go over to iTunes. You search for this program in the uh, podcast section, rate it, uh, write a, a hopefully a kind little review. That really does help. So if you're a fan of the show, I would appreciate it if you could please take a couple of minutes to do that. Uh, okay, so it is Tuesday as I record this. Tomorrow the episode will go live. Uh, I'm actually having surgery tomorrow. Um, I have a hernia in my belly. <laughs> So I have to have hernia surgery. And uh, you want to know how I got it? I got it by lifting a giant box of books. That's a true story. So uh, wish me luck. Please remember that Rilke, Lewis Carroll, and Thomas Wolfe wrote while standing up and that Truman Capote and Robert Lowell wrote while lying down. That is all for now. I should be back on Sunday with another new episode. Same as usual, two shows a week. Uh, The surgery that I'm having is relatively minor, as I understand it, so I should be able to do the show. But if for some reason I'm not... Uh, please just sit tight. I'll be back again uh, next Wednesday, and uh, we'll just have to see. You know, I'm going to be in some pain. Uh, I'm going to have some painkillers, so that could be interesting as far as the monologue is concerned. It could be a uh, monologue plus Vicodin-type situation, which could be, I don't know, maybe that could improve things. So uh, that's it for now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>